Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a rallying cry from the federal CIO could set the stage for big action. Claire's challenge to be unwilling to accept the current set, the status quo, and to be willing to take a risk on change, I think is a, a fantastic message for us all. A warning for the Pentagon's JADC2 future. I am afraid that if this is the, the approach uh, that they're taking within the Pentagon and trying to centralize that oversight responsibility within the joint staff, I don't think they're going to be set up for success. And a hard look at programs at DISA might lead to hard decisions. Some efforts will maybe see a little plus up the capability. It's an alignment to the five lines of effort. And in other cases, we will question whether or not, you know, the future of that program has a future. It's Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A full year continuing resolution could stop efforts agencies are making on cyber priorities. Energy Department Chief Information Officer Ann Duncan says she wouldn't have enough money to run the program management office she set up to execute on the EO under a full-year CR. Duncan says her choices would be to move money from another priority or do without the PMO. Human-centered design's getting a big boost from telework at the Department of Veterans Affairs, according to the agency's Deputy Chief Experience Officer. Barbara Morton says the agency gets a wider range of input from veterans than they would have gotten before. Morton says it'll take another year of research for the VA to understand the full impact of remote work on the agency's operations. The Agriculture Department will save almost $2.5 million and 78,000 work hours in three months thanks to robotics process automation. Dave Nitschpeer is writing about the savings at FedScoop.com. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the story behind this and what agriculture is doing? Basically, they've just been seeing such huge gains in terms of cost savings and, and also being able to to save man hours here. So they're really d- doubling down on this stuff. They've got way more automations in production coming in Q1 of next year and some really interesting ones that I think are going to make uh, make even bigger gains for them as agency leadership really dials in. You report they've got 66 automations already in production. That's another $5.5 million in cost avoidance and uh, 156,000 workforce hours saved annually. Does this fit with what we're seeing with RPA all across the government, Dave? I think it's actually ahead of the curve uh, in a lot of ways. I I think one of the things that's interesting that they've done is they've created a a maintenance operations and maintenance uh, service that uh, RPA is known to break when interfaces change. And that's been a big concern with agencies as they try and adopt this technology. The fact that they and the only other agency I know off the top of my head that has an office like that is is GSA are are doing something like that really ensures that on the customer end, they have this assurance that if something breaks, we can actually fix it. You can read more about USDA's bots and more on all of these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. The head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Jen Easterly, is just one of the leading government cyber experts that will join me at Palo Alto Network's Public Sector Ignite Virtual Conference, Thursday, November 18th. I hope you'll join me, too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies like zero trust and endpoint detection and response. You can see the agenda and sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com. 
The Technology Modernization Fund could get another windfall from the infrastructure bill Congress is considering. Members of the TMF board tell FedScoop they select projects based on the impact they can have on serving citizens. Dan Chenick is executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. He's former branch chief for information policy and technology at the Office of Management and Budget. At the ACT-IAC Executive Leadership Conference in Hershey, PA this week, Dan says comments from federal CIO Claire Martirana and GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan show the process for delivery of those solutions is changing. Instead of taking a policy like I used to do when I was at OMB and kind of writing the whole thing down and then leaving to the agencies the process of implementation and delivery, um, you basically start with the people who are on the ground delivering. Um, Claire talked about user experience driving activity. You, you understand their part of the process, their, their interaction with a government service, um, and, uh, and then how, they take, how the government worker then takes that information, feeds it into a technology system, and does a decision. And then you, you write policy based on the understanding of that experience. So you, you basically get the delivery folks in the room and then the policy kind of follows from that. And it's a different model. There aren't, it doesn't always follow that that's the right model. But mm-hmm. in a model where you're talking about technology and production, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know that one of my favorite topics to talk about is the president's management agenda. What do we take away from that particular idea that you just described and extrapolate into what we might see when the Biden administration releases its president's management agenda? Because it sounds like you're talking about really important techniques that could form some of the core elements of that. Yeah, I think if you look at the major um, policy priorities of of the Biden administration, the Biden-Harris administration, around COVID response and recovery and resilience going forward, um, racial equity, um, uh, climate change and using technology is, is a big part of that going forward in the 21st century. And, of course, economic revitalization. Those, those are big, uh, decades-long types of challenges. And addressing them requires, though, a step-by-step type approach. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll see most likely a management agenda that, that's talking about how do we address these major challenges that the administration identified and then uses the tools of the traditional management agendas like technology, financial management, procurement, um, human resource development, budgeting, as means to achieve those policy ends. In prior management agendas, those were the ends. Um, There was a little bit in the Obama administration, and it's continued in the cross-agency priority goals Mm -hmm. of identifying mission outcome driven things like reduction in veterans homelessness is a good example um and then using those tools to to identify that but i think you'll see um most likely uh, the administration majoring really in how do we use this kind of delivery based approach to break down the achievement of goals in these large societal problems and measure them step by step mm-hmm. what's the what are the most important things in your view that the government needs to do or that agencies need to do individually to underpin that, either technologically or culturally, Dan? So I think there's an important role, you know, being a policy person, I got my master's degree in policy, for policy people to continue to understand large problems and how do you develop a strategy. Um, it's sort of the integrated project team approach. So, so as administrations, as agencies develop policies and strategies, that implement the PMA priorities when they come out, it's not making it the province of one particular 
office in the agency that's the policy office is going to drive this or the or just the the digital office is going to drive this you need to have both I would argue policy and delivery and delivery can be a technology delivery or, or an acquisition person or even an HR person um, they all need to be sort of there in an integrated project view and, and the diversity of viewpoints gets you to a better policy and a better strategy mm -hmm. what do you think people will leave this conference and go back to their agencies and do differently as a result of that thought process, that uh, d a demonstration mm -hmm. by uh, Claire Martiran and Robin Carnahan about that transition from a policy-driven to a delivery-driven environment. Yeah, and I, again, I think it's, a, it's not a change from one to the other. It's more an introduction of delivery into yeah. the policy development process. Okay. I think... Um, Claire's challenge to be unwilling to accept the current set, the status quo and to be willing to take a risk on change, I think is a, f a fantastic message for us all um, to think about as we, as we go forward. And, and that doesn't mean that we all have to take the giant leap, which, which causes great fear. But there are small things every day that you can do where, where there's a little bit of a leaning forward. Um, you know, trying something new, bringing in a new person um, into a conversation, uh, uh, looking at something that, that was done in the past and really analyzing it for what's the takeaway that we can bring forward. You know, maybe this didn't work, but two things did. So let's lean forward and bring that in. So it's looking for the opportunities for incremental improvement um, that lead to the large changes um, in, in scope and, and that sort of moonshot type uh, mentality. Um, what's the hardest part of that process that you just described? Where do you think the pain points will be for a leader who's trying to execute that or lead a group of people to execute yeah. that. I think that's, the, that's where culture and human nature come mm -hmm. in. You know, people do what they're used to doing. Um, and managers, especially at the senior ranks of the civil service, are rewarded for doing what they do well. Mm -hmm. And they've, they've risen in their jobs. Um, when I was in government, that, you know, I, w I was at OMB. I was uh, succeeded in a number of ways, and I became a member of the SES. Many, many managers follow a similar path in their agencies. And having the, giving those managers the freedom to experiment is an important part of a political appointee's role, is sort of saying, all right, you, I, you, I'll take the, the, uh, the risk in terms of public um, uh, criticism, if there is any, or, or, and I'll spread the praise on your team. Um, that kind of cultural shift is something that, that new politicals, as they enter the administration, can really do well for change among the career staff. Dan Chenick, former OMBer at the Executive Leadership Conference this week. You can read more coverage from ELC in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Joint All-Domain Command and Control Division will be the central manager for JADC2 activity in the Pentagon. The department will base the division inside Lieutenant General Dennis Krall's J6 office in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Todd Harrison is Director of Defense Budget Analysis and Director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, welcome. Thanks for coming on. I note that the day before we learned about this, you put out Battle Networks and Future Force Part 2 operational challenges and acquisition opportunities and i see recommendation number one clearly define organizational roles and responsibilities for jadc2 to include the possibility of creating a joint program executive office a new independent agency under the undersecretary of defense for research and engineering or a lead combatant command for jadc2 is what general crawl did here close enough to what your recommendation was that we would call it even welcome todd 
Hi, thanks, Francis. Good to be on. Uh, the short answer is no. I, I have a lot of concerns about it. And one of the things I point out in the paper is we need to learn the lessons of 20 years ago, uh, back when we had a similar focus in the early part of the Rumsfeld uh, tenure at DOD, uh, big focus on net-centric warfare, on building out the global information grid. Um, the basic idea was the same. We need to be able to better connect our networks to share data more fluidly and transparently in real time. Uh, at, that is the core vision that's behind JADC2 today. How did we organize ourselves back then? Uh, and what went wrong. Uh, and I explore that in the paper, but the bottom line is this, um, you know, what we tried 20 years ago was let the military services go off, build their systems, run their own programs, and we'll do oversight uh, from the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Networks and Information Integration uh, and the Joint Staff J6. Uh, and the problem with that was while they had oversight responsibility, the joint staff and ASD uh, do not have real authority over programs. They don't have budget authority. The services retain that authority. So the services basically went off doing their own things. And there were other problems that happened as well, um, you know, with the joint staff and ASD NII coming out with uh, different requirements and policies and imposing them on programs without having the uh, technical maturity behind those policies and requirements for the programs to actually be able to execute on them. So there were a lot of things that went wrong, but you know, I am afraid that if this is the the approach uh, that they're taking within the Pentagon and trying to centralize that oversight responsibility within the joint staff, I don't think they're going to be set up for success. So to be clear, the difference is the money, right, Todd? The difference is who That's controls right. the money and who decides where it goes and who decides what it goes for, right? Yeah. What I always like to tell people is real authority in the Pentagon is budget authority. Who has to establish that? Can that be established in the Defense Department itself? Or is that something that Congress, say the, the authorization or appropriations committees of jurisdiction have to say, this is how we want this done? So DOD could do it itself or Congress could mandate it. Um, but, you know, I don't see anything prohibiting DOD from, from creating a joint program executive office uh, or creating a uh, new organization under R&E. Um, you know, that would be similar to the Missile Defense Agency. The Space Development Agency is a great example. Um, you know, four years ago in the Trump administration, uh, they just created the Space Development Agency, right? They didn't need permission from Congress to do that. Um, you know, the other option that I looked at in the paper is designate or create a new combatant command. Uh, it, if you created it, it would be a functional command. Uh, for JADC2. Uh, they could do that as well. So I think those are all options that they ought to be exploring. You uh, make a couple other recommendations here that I think are interesting. Make key top-level architecture decisions, including narrowing the scope of JADC2 to just battle networks as soon as possible. Is that what you're suggesting, or if, are you just suggesting if they're going to do it, they should do it quickly? No, I, that's what I'm suggesting, because I think that the uh, the JADC2 strategy that they've come out with from the joint staff, uh, it's very broad. 
Uh, and, you know, the, uh, the DOD uh, uh, data uh, guidelines, or I forget exactly what they call them, uh, that came out of the Deputy Secretary's Office uh, data decrees, I think, um, that they also apply across, you know, all uh, information technology systems, right, including your business systems, including, you know, inventory management, including personnel records, medical records, right? And if you are expanding your JADC2 scope uh, of what the strategy is supposed to cover and what your policies are supposed to cover, if you expand it to be that broad, uh, then you've gone too far and you're not going to be effective. You're biting off more than you can chew. So my recommendation is narrow that scope. JADC2 should be focused on battle network interoperability specifically. Uh, all the other data systems, yes, they need to be better connected, uh, more interoperable. Those are separate problems you should deal with outside of JADC2. Third recommendation is expanding the Pentagon's typical make-buy analysis to include options for buying services instead of products and including systems that may be commercially owned and operated. Why is that important in your view, Todd? Well, you know, a lot has changed in the past 20 years and, you know, the traditional approach to acquisition, one of the first things you do is an analysis of alternatives and basically you decide, can we you know, uh, upgrade, modify, or use systems we have today in a different way, or do we need to buy something new uh, where the government goes out, pays for the development, and then buys it as a system, and then the government operates it? What's different now is you have a very vibrant commercial market that overlaps with what the military needs in a lot of these areas in terms of communication, intelligence collection, surveillance capabilities, and data processing capabilities where there's so much overlap with the commercial sector, we need to be looking at, oh, is there an option to buy what we need as a service uh, instead of buying the product? Uh, is there an option to buy something as a service where it is commercially owned and commercially operated, where maybe you know DOD um, is just one of many customers? You see them doing that, using that approach when it comes to things like cloud computing, uh, although that contract has been mired in problems, uh, but that is clearly the direction they're going. We need to be looking at, are there options to do that in terms of ISR collection, right? Look at what's happening in the commercial space sector. You got companies launching, you know, uh, electro-optical imagery satellites by the dozens. You've got synthetic aperture radar satellites being launched and operated by commercial companies. Should we just buy that as a service rather than buying the satellites themselves as a product that the government operates? We need to explore those options. And it's interesting that you raise that because when the the commercial launches went up and people were talking about space tourism and all of that kind of stuff, I think what you just suggested there was lost in all of that conversation. The, what I took away from those launches was not, oh, it's going to be nice to go up in space for half an hour or something like that. What I took away from that was that that was a message, not necessarily just to the United States government, to the Defense Department, to the Space Force, but partly to say, we can do everything. You don't need to own it anymore. 
You just right. need to buy it from us because we can do all we can deliver all of the capabilities that you may need. And if we can't today, we're getting there. Is that is that what you're getting at there with what you just described a moment ago? Tom? It, it is. And, and we need to consider that there are a lot of things that can be commercially owned and operated that we might not be thinking of today. You know, we've used this model in the past. Uh, we've used it for things like communications, um, you know, extensively. We rely on a lot of commercially owned and operated communication systems. But, you know, look at where the Navy is going with aerial refueling. Um, they've got two different contractors now uh, that provide commercial aerial refueling services. Um, you know, this is real. Uh, this is happening. And, you know, we need to be open to the idea that that is a potentially a, a really important part of our future force structure when it comes to building out JADC2 and the battle networks of the future uh, is that part of it can be commercially owned and operated. Todd Harrison of CSIS. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can read more about the JADC2 construct as it is now and as it could be in the future. And you can find a link to Todd's paper in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, a programming note that the show will observe tomorrow's Veterans Day holiday and you will get a new edition of the show on Friday afternoon. Inspectors general across government want to stop doing some of the work they're doing now and start doing things they're not doing now. Allison Lerner, the IG at the National Science Foundation and the chair of the Council of Inspectors General will explain that Daily Scoop podcast debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Defense Information Systems Agency is about to start a reorganization. The director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, will set up four centers of operation. Major General Garrett Yee, U.S. Army, is assistant to the director of DISA. General Yee, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. It's terrific to see you at the Feds Group 50 on uh, Thursday night. Congratulations on that award. Uh, I quote from my colleague Jackson Barnett's story, the Defense Information Systems Agency is reorganizing its structure to create a flatter agency. What are you and General Skinner going for in that reorg? Welcome, General. So when General Skinner got here, he uh, realized that um, the organization, you know, was still very much stovepiped and very complex for him to be able to maneuver this agency to support the department's needs, right? And... Um, that observation was coupled with him trying to uh, focus the agency on five priorities. Uh, he laid them out in uh, the Asia Tech and Cyber event recently, but uh, really quickly it was prioritize command and control. It was drive force readiness through innovation. It was leverage data as center of gravity. And number four was harmonize cybersecurity and the user experience. And number five was to empower the workforce. And for him to make a difference uh, in the time that he has as the director uh, moving forward, uh, he needed the organization to be, you know, much more agile than than uh, it currently is, uh, and that agility will be enhanced by kind of flattening the organization. We previously had two major centers, and now we have four, which means that if you were, a, you know, a, a second tier reporting previously to the boss, now you're reporting to the boss. If you were previously a third tier, now you're a second tier, right? And so the speed of information to the boss is shortened. Uh, and the uh, ability for him to help maneuver the organization to support these five lines of effort 
uh, are you know uh, better enhanced. Um, and folks were asked, well, so so with these five lines of effort, uh, you know, how you pay for all that? Well, uh, we are going through what we call a, a you know a day at the spa, right? SPA, and that's the Strategic Program Assessment, which is uh, a euphemism for you know, zero base, you know, review, right? So we're going to go through all of our programs. We've already started this to ask, hey, should we be doing that or not? You know, is that sufficiently resourced if we should be doing it or not? And what is the underlying requirement that, that makes us do what we're doing? Uh, and so um, in some cases, my, my sense is some efforts will maybe see a little plus something capability if it's an alignment to the five lines of effort. And in other cases, we will question whether or not, you know, the future of that program has a future, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that, in a nutshell, uh, is what is happening with this realignment. And, and really, let me say real quickly, this is um, not a massive, you know, uh, classic business process reengineering reorganization effort, by no means. This is really alignment of leadership and divisions and centers so that, uh, you know, we can move forward. In the nature of the zero-based approach that you're taking to this, I'm reminded of the Army's night court of a number of years ago where they directed those resources for things they didn't think they needed to do to the things that they knew they needed to do in their modernization priorities. I note from my colleague Jackson Barnett's story, the old structure split this into two broad centers, one focused on business and another on operations. The four new centers' official titles are the Digital Capabilities and Security Center, the Hosting and Compute Center, the Operation and Infrastructure Center and the Enterprise Integration and Innovation Center. What difference will these new centers or the new structure mean to your customers across DOD? Will they detect any kind of a difference in the way that you deliver services at all, Garrett? In concept, they shouldn't. You know, the interface with the leaders are still the interface with the leaders that they were dealing with before. We have had some, you know, faces change because we have had some retirements over the past six months. Um, but in terms of how you interface with this uh, through our mission partner engagement office, through our storefront portal, uh, through the folks that you were working with before, whether it was you know, some program or some service, uh, through our field commands and field offices around the world that support our COCOMs, that all remains the same. Uh, this realignment, reorganization really is intended to help optimize internal uh, processes. Garrett, uh, we talked a little bit before we started the recorder that the reason that this reorganization I thought was important to discuss is because it lays the groundwork for a trend that I see across the department for more of an emphasis on working relationships with DISA. It strikes me that the new structure and new leadership at OSD and in uh, DODO CIO is relying more on DISA than ever before to deliver services and, and to service its customers. Is that a fair observation on my part? Do you detect that trend too? Now, we used to say, and sometimes we still say to some folks out there in our mission partner land that this is the largest service provider that you may not have heard of before. And it's because, you know, we're quietly, you know, doing what we do in terms of providing the infrastructure to support, you know, the defense department. You know, the underlying uh, DISN, the DODEN, uh, we provide, you know, the connectivity around the world. However, you know, probably since about two years ago, um, and I've been here two and a half years, 
with with uh, the DOD CIO, uh, Honorable Dana DC in particular, uh, during the pandemic, uh, really leveraged this uh, to help the department, uh, whether it be uh, improving mass telework requirements uh, capabilities for the department. We went from, you know, like 90,000 to 900,000 teleworkers in a short period of time just to help to make that happen. Uh, in increase the capacity of the bandwidth so that folks could telework and not just be able to do it through a secure VPN connection, but through increased bandwidth just to help to do that, whether it be as a USS uh, Comfort Emergency and Comfort pulled into New York and California, providing circuits and capability for those uh, hospital ships to do what they needed to do. Uh, this was there. And so during the pandemic, we, we saw the Defense Department under the leadership of Dana Deese and the CIO, you know, put a lot of demand on Adissa. Adissa stepped up and met that demand. And at the same time, he was, Mr. Deese was, uh, you know, bringing all the service CIOs together. And, and I had been working, you know, in, in this space, not a long time. But it's about 2015 when I came to the Pentagon for the first time. Um, uh, you know, all the departments are doing their own thing, right? Uh, and during the pandemic, uh, you know, under uh, Honorable DC's leadership, you, you know, brought us into daily meetings, <laughs> two, three, four hours a day, five days a week, all the CIOs, service CIOs, uh, and getting us all on the same page uh, in terms of where we were headed, and then, and then placing that demand on DISA to help coordinate and deliver uh, synchronized capability for the department. Uh, so, so you're right in your observation where, you know, previously, you know, I think this was doing great work, uh, but under Emma Norton's leadership, uh, uh, she stepped up and, uh, you know, you know, helped to meet that demand for, for the agency and the department. So um, it has changed, I would say over the past two years. In a good way. Given that acceleration then of collaboration among the department, where do you think DISA potentially is still underutilized, either at the service level or at the department-wide level, General? Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you ask any of our folks, uh, they might say, hey, man, you know, our cup is full, man, it's running over. <laughs> so, 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 so in terms of the day-to-day -day work, there's, there's more work than enough to do. Now, that's at the tactical level. If you think strategically at a higher level, and you listen to uh, John Sherman's testimony recently, and confirmation, uh, the stuff that we're doing with the fourth estate, which is the fourth estate network optimization, where we are going to be, you know, taking over the common IT services for all those agencies, you know, he would say, I think he said, I heard him say, you know, hey, this this is the future for the department, <laughs> right? A single, no kidding, service for, provider for common IT. And then let the services focus on you know, their specialties, right? Uh, and that's and that's a great concept. It may take a while to get there, but strategically, you know, you know, it does make sense. I mean, there was a time when there was not a DISA, and there was a time when there was not a DCA or DC Defense Communications Agency, which is the predecessor to DISA. There was a time, and and the idea of bringing the uh, infrastructure pieces of the services together for DISA or DCA to run at the time uh, was met with a lot of resistance at the time. You know, uh, folks want to control their own space. Uh, and I understand that. But now, uh, you know, we run the DISN, you secure the Doden, 
and, and the services don't have to, right? And it's hard to imagine going back to a time when we didn't have it this way. So uh, if Mr. Sherman has some foresight, maybe in the future, there will be you know, a single infrastructure, uh, common IT services provided by a single agency. Garrett, uh, terrific conversation. I appreciate your time today. Thanks very much for joining me, sir. Happy to be here. Thanks for asking me, Francis. You can read more about the reorg at DISA and the other action items General Yee talked about in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available now on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes no show tomorrow to observe the veterans day holiday the nsf inspector general allison lerner is on friday's show until then i'm the host of the daily scoop podcast francis rose thanks for listening